0: What's up, everyone? Happy Monday. This is Rob, who makes his podcast. This episode today with Chris Buck is... I'm going to listen to this episode like a thousand times. It's so good, so insightful. When I set out to, to do this podcast, this is exactly the conversations I was hoping to have. And the episode the other day with Victoria Will and, you know, everyone who's really been on the show so far. Um, it's just incredible. You know, just getting the opportunity to have these kind of conversations in the first place is really great. And then being able to put them at scale is just, you know, it's everything I wanted this podcast to be. So if you like what you hear today, uh, make sure you rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. I know everyone says that, um, but really that's what helps to kind of help this thing grow. And, you know, if you know somebody who's a photographer or even just thinking about, you know, getting into the field, uh, please recommend this to a friend. Uh, Every little bit helps. And uh, yeah, really, really uh, love this episode. So Enjoy it. It's underscore Rob Johnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N on Instagram. And make sure you uh, go to Chris Buck's website as well. uh, That's chrisbuck.com. And check out all his amazing portraits of Seth Rogen and Obama. This is the perfect way to start a Monday if you're a photographer. Enjoy. Welcome back to Underexposed Podcast. Today I am joined by Chris Buck, who is uh, an amazing photographer based right here in New York. Uh, He's a photographer and a director known for his distinctive style. His portraits have won placement in the prestigious annual American photography over 40 times, and he was the first recipient of the Arnold Newman Portrait Prize. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. I greatly appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I guess take me from the you know the, the beginning. What was the first time that you picked up a camera? Did you have something before this? Like what's that, that first kind of visceral experience you remember when you got into photography?
1: Well, honestly, I don't remember because my father worked for Kodak. Ah. So photography was just sort of part of the lifeblood of the household. Right, and you know, it was actually my mother who took more pictures. My father was a chemical engineer, so he was more on the technical side, less uh, less creative minded. Right. Um. But uh, so yeah, I mean, I was always artistic, and you know, visual arts was one of the things I was good at. You know, when you're in grade two or three, you begin to kind of parse out what am I good at? The other kids aren't so much, and For me, it was visual art, you know, sort of, it just sort of came natural to me, the instinct of making art. And uh, I didn't really do photography seriously until high school. Um, I was involved in the yearbook a little bit. Uh, And then, and then I went to photo college, honestly, mostly because I didn't get into art college. I was, uh, (laughs) the local art college rejected me. So I went to photo school and uh, the rest isn't history.
0: It's funny, there's been several guests that have, have mentioned um, thus far about how, how the yearbook uh, started their, their, their photo journey. Or A lot of times they were like the head photographer for the yearbook. So it's sort of, a, it's an interesting thing that, you know, these things that we do in our younger life, that which at the time kind of seemed like not that big of a deal. Maybe they can, you know. Well, create, I
1: don't know. I mean, I do artwork. think the role that photography played in the yearbook was sort of similar to what it played when I got out into my professional life in that. It allowed me to move through kind of the culture, you know, in this case of the high school, and kind of interact with the popular crowd while not being part of it. I could interact and connect with them and kind of get a close up look and even kind of be like an arbiter of what that would be or how it would be remembered um, without being part of it. And that was really appealing. I was very drawn to. Like, who's popular and why? I mean, it's obviously a very high school thing, but I kind of carried it through into my professional life right. with photographing celebrities. And that's sort of what photographing celebrities is, right? It's like it's sort of rubbing shoulders with the popular crowd while not being among them.
0: And what was that first real gig where all, you know, maybe all of a sudden you're in front of a celebrity or something like that, or your first actual shoot? Talk me through like that beginning process. Did you intern? How did that all kind of start?
1: My early years in photography were, you know, they. I can't really separate them from what I was doing otherwise. Right. So when I was in college, I was very involved in the music scene in Toronto, where I grew up. So I worked for a music paper called Nerve, and I was their photo editor. As Obviously, I was taking pictures for them as well. I wrote articles for them. I managed a local band for a while. And just as importantly, I put out compilation tapes of local and international bands just that was my obsession was music, music culture. Uh, and that was what I was all about. And photography was just one aspect of it. At some point, I realized that if I want to be successful, I need to focus on one thing. I mean, if I I mean, I may not even be successful in that, but if I had even a chance, I need to choose one lane and really focus on that exclusively. And so I chose photography really because it was where, you know, both my talent and Potential success really lied. I will say that, like, I built my early portfolio by pursuing like celebrities first locally in Toronto, but then really, like, where it really paid off was when international bands, you know, kind of like underground artists. So they're kind of accessible, but they're also, they also have a name. So they'd be kind of like legendary, I mean, now legendary, but kind of like alternative kind of underground artists who come through Toronto and they might just be playing like a big club or even a small club, but Mm -hmm. they have a bit of a name and a reputation. And so getting a photograph of them in my portfolio, especially early on would really say like, wow, like you got a great picture out of this sort of name person. And so at least within the waters I was swimming in, which was the kind of alternative rock world, uh, kind of pre grunge. So it it was genuinely underground still in that world, I was able to get access to people. And the funny thing is I work for this music publication, but they often, cause I don't want to frame it. Like it was all like super easy. Cause it wasn't, I was their photo editor, but they're, they're genuine. They're, they're like month to month, month practice was a band is coming to town and they'll interview people over the phone, say from London or New York before they come to Toronto and they do the interview and use press shots as the art. And so when they came to Toronto, we weren't shooting them. And I'm like, what's that about? Like, I want me and and our other shooters to have access to these artists, you know, to build our careers and portfolios and such, and also just have better art for our publication. And they're like, well, you know, we need a relationship with the record companies and the promoters, and they want us to promote their shows before the artists come here. So what I started to do was to make connections with the promoters And the record companies, and so that they would introduce me to artists when they came to town, and that's how I built my early portfolio before I got any editorial work. So Mm -hmm. once I went to go get editorial work, I went into them with these, you know, striking portraits of these underground artists, and they're like, "Wow, this is great!" Like, who'd you shoot this for? I'm like, "Well, I just kind of did it for myself." And they're like, "Like, how? How do you get access?" (laughs) And and I actually ran into one of the promoters at the airport in Toronto, like. 20 years after I left and I was like, Hey, how's it going? Like, you know, Oh my God, thank you so much. Like, you know, my career was built on the access you gave me. I was like, I got to ask you, why did you introduce me to people? I was like this scrappy 23 year old kind of like, you know, awkward kid. Like, why would you do that? (laughs) And the guy shrugs and he says, you seem serious. Wow. And I was like, that's it. And he kind of (laughs) like just walked away. And I was like, I was like, what does that mean? And I, I've been thinking about it obviously since, and I realized that I'm the same way when I meet young people, if someone comes to me and they have focus and they know why they've come to me, I really take them seriously. And I do everything I can to connect the dots for them. And so I think there's something in people who have achieved something like this promoter had in Toronto, who was like, maybe like 10, 12 years older than me, you know, he was still a young guy. Like, I mean, he's you know, old to me, but he was probably yeah. in his like mid thirties, you know? And I think he looked at me and thought, you know, this, this kid is, you know, he's clearly like burning with something and he's super eager. Keep bugging me. Like, sure. Like he seems really interested. As long as I didn't like blow it and like, you know, kind of piss off one of his artists, or even if I did, like, I think it was, everything was so kind of punk rock. I think they almost didn't care. Like if I pissed off one of their people, they probably thought it was funny. Like it was just, it was yeah. just a weird world. And I'm not saying it's, it's different now. Cause I think, you know, people always complain about like, Oh, it used to be so easy to get access. And now it isn't. I just don't think that's true. I think it has to do with your level of, you know, resourcefulness and, determination. You know, the fact is, is that I built my early career doing that 100%, but still like 70% of the time it fell through either. Like I hung around, like I, you know, I'd go to the show and they'd say, yo, know, they say, come back after the show and maybe we'll do a partner with you. So I go to the show, I hang around, I'd stay for the show. You got to think too, like I didn't drink or smoke in those days. I mean, I don't <laughs> smoke now, but I do drink a little bit. Right, And so I was just like, and this, the shows are sometimes good and sometimes not, but I'd wait around to the end and they'd be like, ah, oh, they're too tired. And, you know, it's like oh. 1 a.m. Now that the subways are closed. I have to take the bus home. And I do this, you know, all the time. And this is how I built my early portfolio because I was, this is just what I did. Like this, I was 100% focused on being successful and i do whatever I had to. And the thing about it is that, yes, it was like annoying and exhausting. But the fact is, is that the public only sees the wins, you know, I'm not going to go on and on about how like, Oh, I put all this time in and you know, eventually they didn't give me a shot or (laughs) they give me two minutes and they didn't do anything or, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't broadcast that stuff. So all the, you know, my new potential clients might see is the wins. They don't see the like awkward failures or the rejections or whatever. Right. Yeah. If there's one piece of advice I'd give a young shooter, yeah, just so that's my one. next question. There you go. <laughs> if there's one piece of advice I give a young shooter, I would say that it would be you need to embrace the paradox that you need to be super driven and focused and also patient. Yeah. And it's really hard to do that because you're super driven and focused. And so you're like, why is this not happening yet? I'm knocking these doors. I'm sending up promos. I'm doing email newsletters. I'm posting like awesome images on Instagram, like, you know, a couple of times a week or whatever it is. And And yet, and you, maybe you even meet with people or do like, you know, Zoom meetups and people are like, we love you. We want to work with you. And they keep saying like, you know, you're on our short list and they're not calling you. The fact is that it takes a lot. It takes a long time. It takes a long time. Like there's an aspect to, this profession where, and it's not, we really talked about enough. Once they can see you're good, they probably won't hire you for five years. Yeah. And that is like mind blowing five years. How about five months? Maybe like five years is like forever. I mean, but that's there's a weird thing. Like when I first visited New York after I finished college, I came and I, you know, I went to Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair, Esquire, um, Spin Magazine, The Village Voice. All these publications were like, "Hey, yeah, wow, you got something going on. Stay in touch. Like, you know, definitely would love to work with you. We'd love to give you a try." And I'm like, well, it blew my mind." And you know, then I began to plan to move to New York and everything. Well, even once I moved to New York, the only publications who actually hired me in those first few years were the really base level ones that pay like. $125 all in, you know, like the village voice. <laughs> and, you know, those are amazing opportunities and I'm not knocking it. But, you know, I didn't work for Vanity Fair for maybe 10 years at that point. You know, it it's a weird thing where like, and I'm not, I'm not saying their encouragement wasn't genuine, but I used to, you know, I I'd deal with all these photo editors and, and art directors and I'll be like, oh, they really want to make great work and they want to be part of something that's like, like memorable and super dynamic and a real banger. I kind of realized later that they mostly don't want to lose their jobs.
0: Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. So
1: so yes, they want to be part of great work, but they first want to make sure they don't get fired. <laughs> yeah. And so it's really hard to get people to give you that like early break where they give you like like a a larger assignment or like, you know, an assignment where they're going to run multiple images or with a, like a high stakes subject is really hard to get those jobs. And it's um, and it just kind of takes time. And I'm not saying any of this to be discouraging quite the opposite, but to say that if you're getting good feedback, take that to heart and stick with it. Yes. It might take a while for that to really pay off. But but if you're getting feedback that's telling you that you've got something special going on, then stick with it and keep growing and keep getting better.
0: That's awesome. This is what I needed to hear. This is so good so far. I'm really loving this. And uh, it's true. I think that's so valuable for so many people that are out there. Because I, I have these moments where... You know, I'm like pacing back and forth in my living room, giving my wife like an ear beating about like, you know, how I love photography and how I'm taking these classes and I'm learning so much and like it's all gonna work out. Same thing like with my parents and stuff like that. And as time has progressed, I think that they realize that in the long run, I'm probably gonna be okay. But sometimes like when I'm done talking and I go in the other room, I think to myself, am I gonna be okay? (laughs) You know, like, do I know what I'm doing? You know, cause I'm quick to just be like, and they said this and that's good. And that means that maybe I'll be able to do this one day. And then, you know, you're alone, 3 a.m. looking at the ceiling, like, am I going to be able to do this? So it is really encouraging. And I, I find that, that it gives me a sense of optimism to hear someone like yourself say that and realize that it does, it does take a long time. I thought when I left school, I, I thought that I would be the person. It's like, they don't know my work ethic. I'll, I'll do this in six months. And real life has really, really, <laughs> like, humbled me in that regard. So that's good. Well, once you once you get there and you're working on these, you know, high profile things, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. And it's not so much about, you know, the celebrities and stuff. And don't worry, this won't turn into like, you know, what was it like to beat Obama and all that stuff. But I do, I do want to know, though, you know, what does it look like when you're on set? You know, maybe like that portrait of Obama or you're working on a big thing for like, you know, Vanity Fair, like you mentioned, Variety. I know they're all different and they'll have their own unique variables and stuff, but Give me some insight as to what that kind of looks like. How does the preparation go all that? And then when they get there, that sort of thing.
1: It is funny how, when you look at the work of any photographer, you, you can't help but kind of like build your own backstory of like how the shoot went, like, well, you know, they walked in the room and what was the conversation about the direction and about what images might happen. I mean, even I do it, like I look at, you know, some work of my peers and, and then I think, you know, this is not how it happens. Like in reality, the, it's, it's, it's a much more kind of, um, I don't want to say messy, but it's, it's kind of, it's more organic than it kind of seems that, you know, in the end, you kind of tie, you, you get this tidy shot with a little bow tied on it and it it really feels finished and it feels like it's making like a little story and a statement and it's kind of like dynamic and inviting and and you're like you know they collaborated and they worked to this moment and it's fantastic (laughs) but in reality that's kind of not how it happens and it's kind of one of the great things about photography is that it is a um it's it's one frame from hundreds maybe even thousands you shoot that day and, you know, photography is a lie. And, you know, you tell the story of like this fantastic collaboration where this sort of uh, portrait of essence is made. And in reality, it's, you know, you kind of in your basement office, you know, going through the images and being like, this one looks pretty good. Let me do a little Photoshop on it and like give it a little bit of contrast, <laughs> <to it." laughs> you know. Yeah. And so, uh, but I'm going to backtrack a bit and try to answer your question more fully. Yeah. The fact is when I have a high stakes shoot where I'm really driving it meaning like either a personal project or editorial then I'm going in with like literally at least a dozen ideas and then I'm open to new things on set so it really is a constantly moving kind of organic thing and that sounds frightening and it is frightening you know but the fact is is that you learn over time that the best images are going to come from a combination of being very well prepared and being very open on the day of. Because you need a plan because, you know, the subject and their people are going to walk in and look at you and be like, you know, okay, what are we doing today? You know, I mean, they might know a little bit ahead of time, but they're still going to be kind of like, all right, what's up? And you need to have answers, you know, and you need to have answers that aren't, you know, they aren't boring, but also are not totally stupid and ridiculous. Like you need to have, like, you need to kind of parse that really carefully. You know, like for example, I always have a whole mix of ideas that I want to try to execute on on any given day, but I'm not going to do the weirdest shot first, just because I don't want to spook my subject and their people. Like it's just a human nature thing where I'm going to do a more conservative, discernible shot first. I mean, that, it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes it's practicalities that make the kind of otter surreal image or whatever, the one you have to kind of do first. And then you kind of walk them through it and explain it and try to make it feel, you know, uh, like, okay. Uh, right. So they'll join you on that journey. But it really is a thing where, um, you know, you have, you are the captain and you need to like steer this, steer this thing into dock and end up, with a great adventure where you have, you know, really like some great images because in the end you're really trying to come out with, you know, one to three great photos. That's it. That that's my goal on any given shoot is one to three great images and nothing else matters. Really. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be unethical or lie to anyone or anything, but really like everything else is kind of just in there to support that simple narrative.
0: I know that it's important for our photographer to know the greats right to stand on the shoulders of giants and and recognize you know the the best work that's out there and, and these sort of like you know visual motifs and and stuff like that and over the years I've tried to build that knowledge and then apply that when I get to the set and yesterday is a perfect example I had all these ideas for all these things I wanted to try the subject shows up all of a sudden it's out the window I forgot everything and I'm in the moment I don't know if that's like a good thing or a bad thing but in your own workflow do you try and emulate other people and then put your own spin on it and and where do you kind of find the line with all that
1: regarding influences i think when you're young and starting out kind of like exploring the world of of photography and who came before you especially in the areas where you're really um drawn i think that having a base level knowledge of you know who came before you i think is great if you do it right you're gonna do one or two things really well you're you're not trying to like build on the history of photography and take it to the next level that's that isn't that is a mountain that is cannot be climbed by anyone yeah you you know you're if anything you're gonna be in a very very narrow lane and you're gonna take that lane to a new place so I'd say focus on the people who really speak to you in whatever genre you're interested in and like really try to parse like what is it that they're doing that you so connect to, and then bring that to your work. And if you can even try to do a specific homage to a specific image of theirs, it really feels like it's the kernel of what you're drawn to about them, because in doing that, it's going to force you to have to figure out like, okay, how they like this, what they do in terms of like styling, What'd they, you know, how, you know, what was intrinsically coming from the subject, that I need to kind of find in my subjects. like So I think that in doing an homage to someone or a specific image that truly is great, it forces you to kind of really break it down. And even when you do break it down and execute it, you'll probably fail miserably and you'll learn so much from that because you'll see that that's how you really see the additional elements that are going on that you are feeling, but not really being able to articulate yet. Yeah. I remember early on, you know, talking to my my professor and mentor in college. And I was a big fan of this music photographer, Anton Corbin. And I was like, oh, I want to, you know, I love his work, but I don't want to be, I want to be my own self. I want my own voice. And he was said, don't worry about it. You know, imitate him. Try to do Anton Corbin pictures and, you know, you'll be fine. You'll, you'll transition into your, your own voice over time. I, I'm not concerned, you know, and I really trusted him. He really knew what he was doing. And he was like, do this, you will learn so much. And it was great advice. And what's funny is, I mean, it's a sort of a side story, but I ended up uh, meeting Corb- Corb- Corbett- Corbett- Corbin um, in uh, shortly after I left college and interviewing and photographing him with a, a, a colleague friend. And when we photographed him, he moved a, he moved himself into this sort of boring flat lighting, which we're kind of like, he's like, oh, the light's really nice over here. And we're like, that light's really lame and like there's nothing going on. And then when we process the film, it looked like one of his photographs. Oh, so like, cool. Oh man. Like it was <laughs> like, it's like he inadvertently taught us a lesson, you know,
0: that's or, fantastic. Or maybe
1: it was purposeful. I don't know. But anyways, the other thing you brought up is about being super prepared and then getting on set and all that going out the window. Like you, mm-hmm. you know, just when you're on set, there's so much to do and there's so many distractions You know, it's one of the reasons why I do so much preparation ahead of time, and I have really detailed notes. In fact, I'll do usually like five or six pages of single-space notes on a notepad.
0: Here we go again, behind the scenes.
1: Just something like this, where I'll just write out all my ideas. This is just my list of things to do today, but I'll just write (laughs) out all my ideas for a shoot, for pages and pages and pages, and then I'll narrow it down and put it in a notebook. And then the notebook I'll have on set, and I'll just have the have the notebook open you know, um, next to me and because I get distracted and stressed and, you know, dealing with the subject and their people and my assistants and lighting and all these things I have to deal with, you know, time is passing and, uh, you know, it it g- can get very stressful and, d- and distracting on set. I have that notebook to refer back to and I'll often have like my notes and subnotes and little check marks beside things that are important. Um, I try to always build in like special shots that are just for me that, you know, because obviously I'm always very, you know, kind of client focused, you know, that's what f- front of mind on set all the time, but I try to always kind of get a shot in there for me too, because that might be the one that like is the epic, you know, one that stands the test of time. So I want to get that one in there too. And I think yeah. it's in my client ter- interest to do that as well. One of the things you learn early on is that you, you do a shoot and you come back and you look at the images and you automatically try to find the image that most closely aligns with what, with what your goals were, but over time you realize this is not the way to to do selects. The way to do it is to go through and find the best images from the shoot, even the ones that were quote accidents, or even the ones that were someone else's idea. You know, uh, even the ones that are like a failed version of what you're trying to do. Because you know, you know when you go back to a shoot years later and you you go through it and you're like there's this amazing shot in here. Why did I not recognize this, you know, at the time? And All of course the, the reason, the reason why is you have those blinders on of like, because you're, you're trying to save your ego. Yeah. You go through your session and you're like, okay, did I fail? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> that's you're like, please tell me I got something. Then by something, you mean something that aligns with what I was trying to do. Yes. You know, am I a failure or am I, or do I know what I'm doing? but you you have to do your best to try to let the images come forward that are like accidental successes or whatever you know or or just just the best images of the day, even if they kind of feel like failures at the moment because, those are gonna be the ones that actually sell you going forward, because the, the fact is, is that you know you're the one behind the camera. It's your shoot. However, the shot comes about, that's your picture, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, it's uh, it's really difficult to do. But y- if you can if you can do that, then then you'll then you in a way like then you learn to do that on set too, because something happens and you're like, well, wait a second, this is way better than than what I was trying to do. Like I'll do stuff where I'll set I'll set up all these lights. And we'll kind of like work on the lighting, you know, before the subject gets there for like an hour and a half and we'll get into a really good spot and the subject comes and you're shooting, you're like, you know, whatever, 15 minutes in. And you realize the natural light shifted. So the light on them, the natural light is really beautiful. So do you keep shooting with the strobes you set up and like worked out like a fine lighting with, or do you turn them off and shoot available light? Yeah. And, and, you know, like I've, I've gone both ways. Like it depends on what my, you know, my client needs are or, um, you know, or, or, you know, how dark it actually is. Like sometimes it's just too dark to actually execute. Uh, it might be gorgeous, but you know, I don't have the, the ASA to do it. Right. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you parse it out at the moment, but it's, it's sort of one of those, you know, you hit uh, a fork in the road and you have to decide, I think you do best when you choose the best path forward and then commit to it. Even if you change the, even if you change your direction partway through.
0: Time management when you're on set. I know that a lot of times the bigger the person, usually the the shorter amount of time. That's what I gather. How should you be utilizing that time, even even if it's not a lot and you're working under intense pressure with all these people?
1: Well, time management is a, a key element of a successful shoot. I think a big part of it is deciding where your priorities are. You know, to some extent, you know, every shoot is a failure. And what I mean by that is it doesn't go as planned, it doesn't go ideal, but that doesn't matter because you're all you're trying to do is come out with two or three great photos. So for example, on most shoots of mine, the first setup takes the most time. And usually it's not the most interesting setup, but it kind of doesn't matter. As long as I move on from it at some point, and allocate enough time to other setups, it doesn't matter. Because you're, you're establishing that relationship with the subject and, and maybe their people too. And even the rest of the crew on that first setup, you're kind of working it out. And so you have to be a bit forgiving on yourself. You know, I'll do these commercial shoots and we'll kind of really break down the day, you know, to the 10-minute to the slot, you know. And I'll always say to the producer, understand the first setup's going to go long. It's just going to happen. It's just part of what happens on set. Don't freak out. We'll make it up. You know, the last setup will be like half the time of the first setup, even though they're supposedly equal shots. Yeah. And so I think being a little forgiving on yourself is really important. You don't want to kind of freak yourself out. Not being freaked out is a big part of the job. Um, I'd say another thing for me is I always wear a watch. Now, that, that seems obvious, but in this day where – we often look at our phone to know the time. Our phone is a distraction machine. It literally exists to get you to look at it more and longer. So not like on set. once people arrive, I'll have the phone around as we're setting up because I might get a text saying, hey, we're running five minutes late or whatever. But uh, once everyone's there, I either turn my phone off or I just put it away. I'll just put it in my bag, other side of the studio or other side of the location. Don't want it around, don't want it near. You know, and I have my watch, and I look at my watch all the time, and keep keep an eye on the time. Um, I don't know. It's it is a, it's a funny thing. I think there's so much pressure when you're shooting that, in a way, I, I'm more aware of the time than I kind of wish I was. I I I'd rather be more in the flow of connecting to the subject and the images than I am on the time. That in a way, watching the time is actually. Something I'm fairly good at. Maybe it's just through experience. I don't know. I mean, another thing with time management is how many setups are going to do. I'm a big believer in doing multiple setups. I don't know what's going to work. So I want to shoot, you know, four, five, seven different setups because I don't know what's going to be the one that really hits. And more variety is going to give me more choices. But there's also a danger of like doing like seven good setups. I I'd rather have one great setup than seven good ones yeah and so striking that balance between more options and and like better you know like or and then or doubling down on something that's that seems to be working or could maybe go better you know that's the real challenge you're shooting something it's going well are you done with that setup or can you go deeper with it and i think that's really the challenge is you know do we have it or don't we? I mean, in, in even, you know, moving from shooting film to digital became, that became a whole new challenge. When you're shooting film, you always overshot because you, you don't, you, you can't see the images as they come in. Well, now they shoot digital and they're tethered. I see images as they're coming in, Maybe not every frame, but every few frames. And so I know too much and I've kind of learned to, to like not. I, I I tend to even if it looks great, I tend to I tend to like tell myself it's not as good as you think because yeah. it probably isn't. And it's I've had times where I shoot something and I'm like, oh, this is great. We got it, we got it, and then move on. And then I look later, I'm like, it was a, we were on to something for sure, but we weren't there yet. And yeah. we stopped too soon. Mm. And that is like just heartbreaking. And so I've I've tried to build into my my timing and my practice a belief that, you know, let's go further, let's go deeper, even if it seems like we're, we're like nailing it.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. Dude, the best advice today I've like ever gotten in my life. Uh, thank you so much. I, I hope that we became good friends after this. I, I know that you're in like the New York area, so maybe we'll hang out one time. Where can people find you online? Uh, what's the best place to get in touch? I know that you have some incredible books. This is uh, shameless self promotion time. Anything you want to put out there? Last words. The floor is yours, sir.
1: Yes, I love to hear from people. I'm at chrisbuck.com. On Instagram, I'm the Chris Buck. And uh, yes, I've published three books, and you can find them on my website.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, definitely go check those out. I was looking at them before. I'm going to get all of them. And uh, thank you again. I'll I'll let you get to it. I know you have a busy day ahead. Thank you for reaching out. No worries. All right, have a good
1: day. You too. Bye.